Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you heard of Cheers? You know, the television show? It changed sitcoms. Heck, it changed television. But it almost didn't. Cheers was the lowest rated half hour in all of television at the end of its first season. All of television. There was no lower rated show. That's Warren Littlefield. He was an executive at NBC at the time. He and his colleague loved the show. But it's the lowest ranked show on all of television. Can we bring it back? Warren's boss, Grant Tinker, the head of NBC at the time, asked him a question. Do you have anything better? And that was it. Game over. Um, We didn't have anything better. So, of course, it was coming back. It's Bullseye. This week, we dive into the empire that Cheers built, NBC's must-see TV. There could be no must-see TV without Cheers. Cheers changed our DNA. Mad About You, Friends, News Radio, ER, NBC was a Thursday night powerhouse in the 80s and 90s. Warren Littlefield was in charge of all of it. He had out-of-the-box smashes like The Cosby Show. When we screened that pilot, it changed four nights of our schedule and then ultimately changed the history of NBC in the 80s. And some tough sells like Seinfeld. The research they got back on it was brutal. Overall evaluation, weak. These people are losers. They don't even like each other. This will never work. Must See TV was a nationwide television event. But now, it's pretty much all crumbled. Here my extended interview with a real-life television executiving legend, Warren Littlefield. His book is called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must See TV. Plus, Oliver Wang explains how a forgotten Al Green record helped create a new kind of soul music. And I'll tell you where I turn when I'm so angry that I'm shaking. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend stuff in the culture worth your time. This week, we're talking comics with Brian Heater from BoingBoing.net and Alex Zalbin from MTV Geek. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? Hey, Jesse. Brian, let's start with your pick, Peter Bagg's Other Stuff. Um, Brian, how would you describe Peter Bagg's work uh, to somebody out there who may have never heard of him? You know, I'd say say there's actually probably a pretty good chance that they've seen his work. Uh, Peter Bagg was one of the most uh, iconic underground cartoonists of the 90s. So uh, anytime you ever saw something that was depicting like a slacker, um, anything from the grunge era, there's a good chance it was uh, Peter Bagg stuff. It's really, it's overly cartoony. Everybody has sort of big, uh, hilarious noses, eyes bug out and things like that. But uh, he usually does a pretty good job of uh, juxtaposing that with some pretty uh, some pretty true-to-life stories. Uh, so, sometimes the case here, sometimes not. Alex Albin, let's talk about Relish, My Life in the Kitchen by Lucy Nisley. Um, this is a memoir comic that frames its stories in, in terms of cooking. That's an interesting premise. Yeah, Lucy actually grew up with not exactly two chefs, but her mom was a chef and eventually a caterer, and her dad was very into fancy food. So that influenced everything she did down to becoming a professional cartoonist and having nothing to do with food. But the way that it's structured is it's both a cookbook and a memoir of her life and how the food is affected the cartooning and vice versa. And before you think it's really dry, Lucy's cartoons are very cartoony. They're really fun. She's very funny throughout and very personal and personable about her life. And she takes these ridiculous stories about things that happened to her and relates them back to cooking and things that were important with her parents. And so it actually works as both a cookbook and a graphic novel memoir, which is, I think, unique. Can you give me an example of one of the recipes in the book and and how it related to one of her life experiences? My favorite story in the book is her trip when she was a teenager 
down to Mexico with her mom, who was recently divorced, and her friend's mom, who was also recently divorced. And while they're down there, the parents immediately get sick off of the food and are stuck in bed with a stomach flu. So the kids hardcore on ridiculous Mexican candy and try huevos rancheros by themselves. And over the course of this story, not only do they eat the food, but she has her first blossoming as a woman and he gets into Mexican porn. And it's just this <laughs> ridiculous coming of age story with a backdrop of food with these beautifully hilarious illustrations by Lucy uh, and the rest of the books like that too. It just really is very human and very delicious looking at the same time. Alex Zalbin from MTV geek recommends relish my life in the kitchen by Lucy Nisley. Brian heater recommended Peter bags, other stuff that'll be available in May on Fantagraphics. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I just read that the highest rated show on NBC last week was watched by less people than The Talking Dead on AMC. Not The Walking Dead, The Talking Dead. The talk show about The Walking Dead. In the 1980s and 90s, things were very different for the Peacock Network. My guest Warren Littlefield helped guide the ratings juggernaut that was NBC's must-see TV. Cheers, Cosby, Friends, Frasier, Seinfeld, ER. At one point, 60% more people were watching NBC's Thursday night lineup than were watching everything else on network TV that night put together. Warren Littlefield's new book, Top of the Rock, is an oral history of the must-see TV juggernaut. Though I have to say I was a little disappointed there was no chapter about the single guy. Or <laughs> Veronica's Closet. Or Rhythm and Blues. My failures. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Warren, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So when you started at um, NBC, you were working in comedy development. And it it was right around the time that NBC started. Well, first of all, tell me where NBC was at when you and Brendan Tartikoff, the man you followed, your your sort of um, uh, the guy who was one step ahead of you, joined the team. Um, well, it was December of 1979, and in a three-network race, there was no Fox. NBC was considered number four. Um, it was not a good time for NBC. In comedy, different strokes and Hello, Larry. That was it. ABC had 14 comedies, award-winning, outstanding comedies. Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and then Taxi. Over at CBS, uh, MASH, Carol Burnett, all in the family. So NBC had a long way to go. Well, it's interesting because you describe the comedy landscape. And the 1970s had two sort of great modes of comedy. One of them was Norman Lear et al., Mm -hmm. shows that were grounded in social reality, typically family shows. And then there are like the super silly, frivolous nonsense shows that you could loosely group under like Three's Company. And it seems to me like part of what NBC did at that time, and you were part of this, was look at that landscape and think, is there another thing that we could offer? Well, that's absolutely correct. And nothing is more significant than NBC going out and making a series commitment to the Charles Brothers and Jimmy Burroughs. Now, NBC has no sophisticated adult comedy. It's not in their DNA. And they put on the table 13 episodes firm on the air. They write up to two scripts, but that's the guarantee. There's no getting out of it. Now, they had never written an original comedy in their lives. But their first project out of the box, Cheers. When did you first hear about Cheers? What was your first inkling about this operation? We had a breakfast meeting where bacon and eggs and sausage were served. The Charles Brothers and Jimmy Burroughs came in and they said, well, we're thinking about a show um, and um, it's going to be set in a bar. We look at television and we see Three's Company, and there's nothing wrong with that. We think that that's a fine show, but 
that can't be the only thing that deals with adult relationships. We want to do a sophisticated adult comedy. And we said, great, let's go. Go write it. And I was the junior kid on the comedy development team. And it was incredible to watch. It was incredible to watch them create characters, deliver a script, and change the DNA, change the future of NBC. And Cheers, it was because we had never had anything like that on the air, it was a really slow start. I'm talking to Warren Littlefield. He was an executive at NBC during the heyday of must-see TV in the 80s and 90s. Here's a clip from the very first episode of Cheers. Socks lost again today, Sam. Sure could have used you coming out of the pen, buddy. Well, in the shape I'm in, Norm. Oh. Yo, miss. Would you love to see Sammy there flinging the old horse hide again? Flinging what? Don't you know who this is? He used to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. Samuel Mayday Malone. I coached this kid down in Pawtucket in double-A ball and up here with the Red Sox. He was one of the best relievers ever to play the game. Take it easy, coach. No, I mean it. He was the very best, as sure as the earth is round. You don't believe that, coach. No, you know, I never used to believe it, Sam, till I saw those pictures from the space shuttle. <laughs> you know, Sam once struck out Cash, K-Line, and Freehand with a tie-in run on second. Oh, how long is the WIMP convention in town? <laughs> Let's talk about what made Cheers special and different. How would you explain what was different about the show to people who, for whom it, it would be difficult to see it with new eyes? Cheers had voices that they brought to life, and it started with Sam Malone. He was a guy that you knew who would scratch his butt Um, look at a woman and go, I think I want some of that. We had never heard those characters on television and certainly not on NBC. And and then in in the creation of Diane, played brilliantly by Shelley Long, you had a woman who was just so smart and so sophisticated that she was her own worst enemy. Well, you take that man's man of Sam And then you put Diane, and there are sparks. There is chemistry, but just complete oil and water. Let's go someplace. Someplace where we can feel free to express what we're feeling right now. Great. uh, How about the couch? (laughs) And uh, the Charles brothers and, and Jimmy were slaves to make it funny, but we hadn't heard people talk quite that way ever before. What's amazing to me in watching it is the way that they marry character-driven storytelling Mm -hmm. and an astonishing volume of jokes. Yes. And to have those two things coexist together is awe-inspiring to me. I I read a big oral history of Cheers in addition to uh, the big oral history of Cheers that's in your book, and everyone was absolutely in awe of Shelley Long's performance as, as Diane. Amazing. And it's, as far as I can tell, no one could stand her. Uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shelley was difficult. Um, when Shelley would go in, and I, I would be standing there on the stage or I'd be up in a booth watching, so that was my night. And um, we would be ripping through the material, and the audience would just be completely into it, laughing and and hanging on every word and scene. And then there would be a wardrobe change, and that's it. We would lose Shelley for what seemed like an eternity on show night. What does that mean? What was going on? Uh, you know, um, she wanted everything to be perfect. Um, her, her hair, her makeup, her new wardrobe, and she was a perfectionist. We did, um, I think at 200 episodes, we did a retrospective. And there's a section where there's a good 20 minutes that just highlights Shelley Long. It blows you away, what she's able to do. Sam, the written word is very special to me. 
To you, it's nothing more than a means of finding the men's room. Oh, 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 oh come on, listen. Uh, I wrote pretty good in high school. You didn't write pretty good. You wrote pretty well. Gee, I wish you'd make up her mind. In the midst of the second season, the, the actor who played coach died. Nick Colasanto. And he was spectacularly good on the show. I mean, just spectacularly good. Um, if, if, honestly, if I had to pick a favorite Cheers character, I might very well pick Coach, and that's in a year and a half of a new series. He was so genuine. There was never a question in your mind that it wasn't an actor playing a role. He just went, no, that's, that's Sam's coach. Give me Gus. Uh, yes, sir, right away. Oh. Gus who? Listen, don't be a wise guy. Just get him. All right, yeah, yeah. yes, sir. Norm, do you know a Gus? Gus who? He hates that question. <laughs> when you were able to replace this this character who was essentially the you know the heart of the show, um, easily the most likable character in the in the cast at the time, um, and do it with someone who turned out to be every bit as spectacularly funny and great. Um, did it? Did that have a bearing on your feelings when Shelley Long left the show and you thought we're going to have to replace one of our lead cast members? Well, it's a really insightful question, and I, I agree with you. He was such a wonderful and important element to that show, and yet he was gone. There was nothing anyone could do. We mourned his loss. And then Jimmy and the Charles brothers said, you know, we think we're going to go a lot younger. We don't want to compete with who he was. But we, similarly we, dumb. Yes. We'll still get dumb jokes. And, um, and we're going to call him Woody. That was the name of the character. Um, and uh, strangely, uh, Woody Harrelson who had no credentials whatsoever, just came in and nailed the role. And the lesson learned for me was don't be afraid of change. And I, I carried that lesson with me throughout my entire broadcast career, whether it was in Law & Order, whether it was in late-night television, um, in, throughout so many series, that uh, change can actually be very, very good. Oh, come on, Norm, why don't you just give up? You're finished. Well, not necessarily. You could move this piece over to here. My God, Woody, that's brilliant. You're suggesting that after two futile interpositions, he attempt to force unobstructed access to the eighth rank. Well, no, I'm saying he should take your horsey with his little pointy head. <laughs> but what's with this obsession with chess here, huh? Oh, it's just a hobby, Sam, you know, I relieve the tension. Well, I got a better way to relieve tension. Her name's Tawny. You want her number? No, thanks, Sam. I prefer something with a little mental stimulation as well. So read to her first. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Warren Littlefield. He was an executive at NBC during the heyday of must-see TV in the 80s and 90s. His book is called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must-See TV. It's out now in paperback. The other thing that, that stood out to me from reading your book and from reading other things about Cheers is that Kelsey Grammer, who just came on the show like a supernova and was basically perfect right from the start, was completely out of control. <laughs> like like in, a, in a way that like when you read things that people say like, oh, he was walking a puma down the beach with a chain, <laughs> you know, like stuff that you... Now, that, is... Why, why is that extraordinary? <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the amazing things about Kelsey is when it came to words, he was a surgeon. His construction of a line, his delivery, was beyond brilliant. Writers would have these they, – they, they would have tears in their eyes. You know, he has these jokes that are – allusions to, you know, Kierkegaard or whatever. <laughs> and Kelsey Grammer has the gift slash skill of selling those jokes so perfectly that 
the illusion is essentially irrelevant. Like it's just it's just bonus sauce. Uh, absolutely, and just a brilliantly flawed character. I guess I got a little time for some barroom cheddar. Might even do the old boy some good. Maybe I understand the local Boston Red Sox baseball franchise has a Herculean task of it to qualify for the postseason tournament. Yeah, they really stink this year. Stink? Hmm. Interesting theory. But when he got further and further away from delivering that precision, um, that's when we knew we had problems. And uh, at Cheers, uh, they did their own intervention. Didn't work. Where where it really fell apart, and uh, and I was there at his house for an intervention, uh, was when we were doing Frasier, and uh, didn't help by the way that uh, we gave him a gift of a uh, Dodge uh, Spider, this ridiculously powerful convertible <laughs> sports car, right. um, to a guy who was drinking too much and using a lot of cocaine. That's what we gave him, and. He flipped it and nearly killed himself. And amazingly, in in just one month, Kelsey was able to recalibrate his life, um, change a lot of his priorities, and come back uh, healthy and focused. In a lot of ways, Cheers set the template for what NBC could do for the next 15 years. There could be no must-see TV without Cheers. Cheers was the lowest-rated half-hour in all of television at the end of its first season. All of television. There was no lower-rated show. And Brandon Tartikoff and I loved it. We, we were there from day one in the development. And um, <laughs> we looked at ourselves and said, we may love it, but... It's the lowest ranked show on all of television. Can we bring it back? And Grant Tinker said to us, do you have anything better? And that was it. Game over. Um, we didn't have anything better. So, of course, it was coming back. And then when Bill Cosby comes on to NBC on Thursday night, he just blows it up. Cliff, why do we have four children? Because we did not want five. (laughs) Who's in trouble now? Theodore. Oh, good, because I thought it was me. You better handle it, because if I handle it, he's going to smile and say, no problem, and I'll have to kill him. (laughs) So you want me to kill him for you? Did you expect that from the Cosby show? A lot of effort was put into the development of the Cosby show, but at the time... Bill Cosby wasn't at the peak of his commercial appeal. Famously, ABC passed on on uh, that opportunity. Uh, no, Bill was not uh, thought to be a big star. But the show was a smash explosion from the first episode. We didn't allow ourselves to dream as high as that show went. We we just thought that's not a possibility. Um, and uh, we had to go up against Magnum P.I., number one, dominant. They were followed by Simon & Simon, dominant, CBS, kicking our ass. We go in with a comedy alternative. Now, we had cheers, and we, we loved it, but people weren't watching. And Bill Cosby infused so many millions of people onto Thursday night where we could say, stick around, and then we delivered the goods with Cheers. But Cheers changed our DNA. What do you think when Cosby was so so monstrously successful um, that in the last 10 years, there basically hasn't been any attempt by network the the big networks to have a show that is substantially non-white in its cast or um uh exclusively non-white in its cast that's not pitched as a show just for the ethnicity of the members of its cast yeah it's bizarre it it, it really is crazy um the big family comedy uh hit of course today is modern family and and um they get around eighteen million or so uh, for a, for an original episode of that show, and 
and there's some ethnicity, but not a lot. I, I've also watched a lot of The Cosby Show uh, lately. And the thing that strikes me about The Cosby Show, and I, you know, I, I, I found it interesting in reading the portion of your book that's about Cosby, is that I think The Cosby Show, watching it now, seems like a, a perfectly good, if somewhat dated, family sitcom, except for the fact that it has, I think, probably the best lead performance on a comedy television show I've ever seen. Bill Cosby is so good in it, it explodes my brain every time. And it all comes from Bill's life. Instead of acting disappointed, because I'm not like you, maybe you can just accept who I am and love me anyway, because I'm your son. Theo, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. No wonder you get D's and everything. Now, you are afraid to try because you're afraid that your brain is going to explode and it's going to ooze out of your ears. When we shot that pilot, I called Brandon at home and I said, this is a hit show. It's going to change everything. The research was through the roof. And when we screened that pilot before we set our schedule and we knew what we had, it changed four nights of our schedule and then ultimately changed the history of NBC in the 80s. After a break, Warren Littlefield talks about the other shows that define must-see TV, Seinfeld, Friends, and one of my personal favorites, News Radio. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, guess what? The 2013 Max Fund Drive is just around the corner. Maybe you're already a devoted monthly member of Maximum Fund, or maybe you've never even thought about donating before. Either way, tune in starting April 1st. We'll be running some of our best shows of the year, doing awesome giveaways and offering thank you gifts like our all-new Intimate Sensations Pack. We mean it. Do not miss this. The Max Fund Drive starts April 1st and runs for just two weeks. Tune in, show your support, and catch some of the best episodes Bullseye has to offer. Every week on Bullseye, you listen into conversations between me and some of the most amazing comics, musicians, and cultural figures we've got. With your ear to the radio, you're pretty close to the action. And I've got a way to get even closer. Later this year, I'll be setting sail out of Miami with a bursting-to-the-seams lineup of comics and musicians from our show. We'll head to the Caribbean enjoying concerts and comedy shows along the way. John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, Nellie Mackay, Dan Deacon, John Hodgman, Mark Marin, Kristen Schaal, the list goes on from there. If you want to learn more about the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, visit our website, boatparty.biz. Yes, really. Boatparty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is sponsored by KCRW, Split Cider, and MailChimp. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before the break, I spoke with Warren Littlefield about the creation of Cheers and The Cosby Show and how they changed the way that NBC made sitcoms. Littlefield oversaw those shows as an executive at NBC, and he was the network's entertainment chief during the heyday of must-see TV in the 90s. His book is called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must-See TV. Let's talk a, a little bit about some of the other epic, monstrous shows that defined must-see TV. I think that Seinfeld is, you couldn't ever discuss these things without talking about Seinfeld. I've also watched every episode of Seinfeld relatively recently. and um, Jesse, you have no life. <laughs> Uh, the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around as I was watching Seinfeld was how it was possible that I understood why I liked it, but I could not understand how it was possible that everyone liked it <laughs> because at the peak of Seinfeld, it was, it was, um, a consistently one of the top couple of shows on television and that, and that at the time meant Many tens of millions of people were watching it, and it is the most specific <laughs> show ever. It's just not good. It's not good. It's not good. I'm bored. She's boring. I'm boring. We're both boring. 
You go out to eat, we both read newspapers. Well, breakfast, everybody reads. No, lunch, we read. Dinner, we read. You read during lunch? Yeah. Oh, wow. Nothing to talk about. Ah, what's there to talk about? Well, at least you and I are talking about how there's nothing to talk about. Why don't you talk with her about how there's nothing to talk about? She knows there's nothing to talk about. At least she'll be talking. Oh, shut like, is it just because it's so funny? Is that like, it seems like in your in your book, you are constantly, you and the other executives are constantly describing elements added to shows to give people a way in, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. that seems to be one of the top jobs of a television executive is to remind a, a TV, brilliant TV writer like, hey, it would be nice if uh, there was, you know, one person on this show who was nice. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, and Seinfeld... W- one one piece of television memorabilia that I, I have that I look at every day hanging on my wall is the original research document for the Seinfeld Chronicles. Overall evaluation, weak. These people are losers. They don't even like each other. This will never work. Um, and so it is with a great deal of pride that that became our cornerstone of Thursday night. And those episodes are, in fact, brilliant. I saw DiMaggio in the donut shop again. Uh-huh. Yeah. Joe DiMaggio? Joe DiMaggio. You know, this time I went in and I sat down across from him and I really watched him. I studied his every move. For example, he dunks. Joe DiMaggio dunks his donut? That's right. See, now I know it's not him. Joe DiMaggio could not be a dunker. Oh, he's a dunker. <laughs> and nothing diverts his attention. Like I'm, uh, you know, I, like I'm sitting in there, you know. And uh, I start banging on the table, you know, to, uh, you know, so that he'll look up, you know, like I'm sitting there, you know, and I, you know. <laughs> he wouldn't move. So then I start doing these yelping noises, like, because the guy is so focused, you see, he can just block out anything that's going on around him. See, that's how he played baseball. Jerry and Larry were trying to just have people sound the way they sound. Their ability to deal with minutiae, their rhythms, but, but America recognized those losers. They recognized the bonds, the friendship. The other thing, though, that that helped opened up the show early on was um, Jerry's parents and George's parents dealing with your parents. I don't understand you. I really don't. You have nothing better to do at three o'clock in the afternoon. I go out for a quart of milk. I come home and find my son treating his body like it was an amusement park. Ma. Don't give me ma. It's a good thing I didn't hit the table. I could have cracked my head open. People can hear you. Too bad you can't do that for a living. (laughs) You'd be very successful at it. It it really opened it up and said, oh, yeah, I'm dealing with crap with my parents. My parents are making me crazy, and yet I love them. And, And those extreme versions... Of, of those figures in their lives, it really invited a lot more people into their world. There's also something really funny about the relationship between the stakes and what's going on. So, um, And their theme was marble rye. Yeah, they took the smallest thing in the world and invested an entire episode of television's worth of emotion and passion and commitment and stakes into those tiny things. Uh, If I give you money, will you go out and get me some fruit? (laughs) Why can't you get it? Well, I I got banned from the store. I can't go back in there now. What happened? Well, you know, we had a fight over the peach and, uh, well, Joe doesn't want my business. I told you not to say anything. Jerry, what am I going to do for fruit? Well, you'll have to go to the supermarket. The supermarket? It's impossible. They don't have a decent piece of fruit at the supermarket. The apples are mealy. The oranges are dry. I don't know what's going on with the papayas. But at its core, in fact, uh, it's why 
research was so absolutely wrong um, that, yeah, they were sort of losers. They truly loved each other. They just didn't wear it on their sleeves. No hugs, but to go to the friend's main title, they were always there for each other. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking about NBC's must-see TV with Warren Littlefield. He was an executive there in the 80s and 90s and oversaw the development of shows like Cheers, Seinfeld, and Friends. His book is called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must-See TV. It's out now in paperback. Let's talk about Friends. So Friends is as epic and sort of definitional a hit television program as could exist in the world. Uh, over $5 billion dollars of uh of revenue for uh for friends worldwide yeah i mean that is absolutely astonishing tell me where friends came from success always has many many authors i will tell you that in my life as a as an executive at nbc and and when i was the president of the entertainment division at 6 a.m every morning um out of a fax machine, I'll date myself, I would get overnight numbers from New York. And uh, back in uh, the early 90s, those uh, overnight numbers would be, oh, 12 or 14 major markets across the United States. And I I don't know, I I was staring at those numbers as I would every day. And um, I thought, wow, so... New York, L.A., Dallas, all those major markets. What? How do young people getting out of college and starting in the world, how do they afford it? It's like really expensive to live in these places. And the only Especially way Especially places like those people on Friends lived in. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. Aspirational. So how can they afford to live in these places? Well, they have to do it with somebody else. They do it with a friend. That's That's the era of starting out. And for some reason, network television and comedy hadn't hadn't addressed that. And it just seemed to me to be an interesting phase of life. So we kind of put out there, hey, this is what we're looking for. And we developed a number of scripts going after that target. They were dreadful. <laughs> they were really, really bad. But Marta Kaufman and David Crane came in and they laid out their lives, really. It was really from their lives, uh, growing up in New York, starting out. And it was a brilliant pitch. We we were screaming with laughter. They came in and said, here are our characters. Here's our show. Here's our, here's our thematic. And I was like, finally. And uh, so we scooped it up uh, off of the pitch. We bought it. We stepped up, made a pilot commitment, and um, and then put Jimmy Burroughs, Mr. Cheers, Jimmy Burroughs. This is, um, James Burroughs was the director of basically every episode of Cheers, almost every episode of Taxi, and and I think it's like 50 pilots that made it on to TV that became series. Uh, he's now at 66. Okay. There um, you go. So, yeah. Um he is a supernova. And uh, so Jimmy Burroughs uh, wrapped his arms around it, said, I like it. I believe in it. There's nothing to tell. It's just some guy I work with. Come on. You're going out with the guy. There's got to be something wrong with him. <laughs> so does he have a hump, a hump and a hairpiece? <laughs> Wait, does he eat chalk? Just because I don't want her to go through what I went through with Carl. Um, okay, everybody relax. This is not even a date. It's just two people going out to dinner and not having sex. Sounds like a date to me. The research was a high week. What does good in the research? Cosby Show was through the roof. Golden Girls, through the roof. By the way, you look at those pilots, doesn't take a genius to know. Hit show. They just hit their stride in the pilot. It rarely happens. Most pilots kind of stink. No, you're exactly. They do. This is really um, hard to make a TV show, especially the first time out. It's hard, and so what you're what you're looking for is potential. 
that's the art form of being uh, an effective network executive is not taking a Cosby show and putting that on, but taking Seinfeld and not letting that die. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Warren Littlefield. He was an executive at NBC during the heyday of must-see TV in the 80s and 90s. His book is called Top of the Rock, Inside the Rise and Fall of Must-See TV. It's out now in paperback. I think the show that meant the most to me emotionally at the time was news radio, <laughs> which which I believe yeah. was uh, hit the network the same year that Friends did, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, uh, mid-season. Uh, so, yeah, yes, it would have been uh, within the broadcast year uh, much later, yeah. So, someone remarked uh, in your book that they were looking at those two shows as they were piloting and thinking, which one of these is going to work? Now, I think it would be a mistake to say that news radio didn't work because it ran for six years and was one of the funniest sitcoms of the 1990s. Um, but it also, you know, <laughs> I remember... I remember having to look in the newspaper to figure out which day it was going to be on, and it was my favorite show. I so, am guilty. Uh, <laughs> that, that is me, Jesse, and, and you can uh, beat me up now. I did keep it around for six years, um, but we moved it all over the place. Happy birthday, Dad. Oh, thanks, Bill. How'd you know it was my birthday? Beth came around asking everybody to chip in on a cake for the surprise party they're having for you later. <laughs> but I got you something on my own instead. Well, well, thanks, Bill. That's very nice. It's one of my favorite books. I thought you'd like it, too. Huh. Crazy from the Heat by David Lee Roth. <laughs> he's, uh, he's from Van Halen, right? I don't know what town he's from. So what's the, what's the difference between those things? What, what was, in your expertise, what do you think makes one of those shows a history of television changing show and one of those shows um, something that you can, you know, buy the complete set on DVD for $14.99 <laughs> on Amazon? Again, really good question. I, I, I think Friends touched so many people's lives. The, the emotional connection, regardless of your age. One of the amazing things we learned not that far into Friends was that 25% of our audience was over 50. I'm like, wow, why? Everyone on camera is in their 20s. Well, guess what? Um, we were all young once. We were all in our 20s at one point. So if you can illuminate and touch what those experiences were like and then really make you laugh, um, then that translates to a really broad welcoming to an audience. But I mean, you could also say we've all worked in radio production, right? <laughs> Am I mistaken in thinking that? No, you know what? Uh, again, not to not to take anything away from news radio. It was, it was brilliantly funny, but it didn't have the emotional touchstones. It didn't have the characters didn't go through the kinds of things that they went through on Friends. And those were far more universal. So you had this crazy job for uh, uh, 10, 15 years. You made a bajillion dollars. And right now you wrote this book and you're here <laughs> in my somewhat dilapidated portable studio inside of my loft where I produce this public radio show when you could be off taking money baths. So <laughs> why did you – why was telling this story so important to you that you were willing to submit yourself to this? <laughs> um, this is not tough. Um, getting those ratings at 6 a.m. every morning when you're not doing well, that's tough. Um, really, my, my book is a celebration of one network, one night for one decade. And it will never happen again. On Thursday nights in the – Throughout the 90s, at, at the height, I guess around 97, we would cum 75 million Americans. Everyone, well, it was a third of the country at the time, they wanted to be a part of that live event. NBC was putting on shows. It wasn't about DVRs. It wasn't about uh, a schedule of I'll get your, my television when I'll get it. 
the country came together and united over that product. So the world's changed. It'll never happen again. There was outstanding television before must-see TV, and there's great television now. But that was a moment where one network stood above all others. So I have to ask you this one ridiculous question, which is, as you know, there were a lot of crossovers on the NBC Thursday night lineup. In fact, I, w- I searched for much must-see TV promos on YouTube, and the one that came up was for a night where one of the characters from Friends was on Caroline in the City, and one of the, there was like, everyone was mixing up. Must-see TV becomes NBC's Starcross Thursday. First on Friends, Caroline shows up to meet Ross's son. Where's your baby? Then Ross is on the single guy, and they each think the other one's, well, lean. Hey. And it's a so there's this theory on the internet that in the legendary con- conclusion of St. Elsewhere where they, we all find out that it was an autistic child's dream. In the snow globe. Yeah. Yes. That because of various crossovers and characters playing on other people's shows, it creates a snow globe averse <laughs> that all of basically all of television falls into this <laughs> snow globe. Did you engineer that on purpose? Wow. Um, that is giving me way, way, way too much credit. And you've done so many drugs to come up with that theory. <laughs> it, was, it was you and the Bundaberg group, right? <laughs> um, uh, no. <laughs> well, Warren, thanks so much for joining me on Bullseye. This has been great. Thanks, Jesse. Warren Littlefield's new book is called Top of the Rock. It's an oral history of NBC's legendary must-see TV. It's not every day you get to talk to a television executive. Want to hear why Warren Littlefield thinks Norm MacDonald got fired from Saturday Night Live? Or why he backed Leno as the late-night successor to Johnny Carson? Hear our extended interview at MaximumFun.org. Love and happiness. After a break, Oliver Wang explains how an overlooked Al Green record helped create Something a new kind of soul music. Wrong. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Love and I'm Cameron Esposito, and I'm the host of Maximum Fun's new podcast, Wham Bam Pow, a sci-fi movie show and action movies also. Did I forget to say action movies? Every week I'll be joined by Mr. Ricky Carmona and Ms. Rhea Butcher, and we are going to chat about films. We're going to tell jokes. We're going to be hilarious. We're going to play games. We're going to have guests. We're going to give reviews. It's going to blow your mind. If you want to listen to the show, you can find it at MaximumFun.org. Or you can subscribe on iTunes. Can you believe how many things I just listed? So many things. Wow! (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's time for another installment of Cannonball, where we take a flying leap into the canon of popular music. We talk to experts about classic albums, or albums that should be considered classics, and figure out what makes them so great. This week, Oliver Wang takes us on a tour of I'm Still in Love with You from Al Green. Oliver Wang is the editor of the music blog Soul Sides. He first heard this particular Al Green record in the 90s when he got uh, what we'll call an unofficial copy at a swap meet. He was pumped. I basically made dubs of my dub and started giving it to my friends it was a little naive because, I mean, it's Al Green. It's not like some really obscure artist. But for me, I just needed to share this. I'm like, you need to listen to this. Tell it to the preacher. Since then, Wang has spent a lot of time with the music of Al Green. He calls I'm Still in Love With You the singer's overlooked record. It's nowhere near as popular as Let's Stay Together and not as beloved by critics as Call Me. But he says the album created a new kind of soul music. It was a melding of Green's beautiful, if slightly flawed, voice and Willie Mitchell's totally innovative rhythm section. 
it took soul music and the possibilities of soul music in a different direction from what we, we had heard with the more up-tempo sound of Motown in the mid-60s. It blended the subtleties of sweet soul in terms of the lightness, um, the, the crooniness of it, but combined it with this rhythm section that you know was one of the best in the business. I think that balance is what is that sort of magical, elusive lightning in the bottle that all musicians and producers are seeking to find. The title track seems to be a deliberate reference to Let's Stay Together because that's kind of the, you know, I'm still in love with you, sort of the opening line to Let's Stay Together or one of the prominent lyrics in that. I'm, I'm so in love with you but That's not unusual, right? If you have minted a big hit, you want your next record to reference that earlier one to create continuity. But I'm Still In Love With You, despite the lyrical reference, you know, it doesn't sound like Let's Stay Together. It takes things in a completely different direction. I think it's a great way to open the album because it does move so unexpectedly in these different directions. I'm glad your mind probably has the most uh, distinctive opening on the album because it just begins with this open drum break. There's that slight micro pause, and that's the great. I mean, that's the beauty of these rhythms, where it only requires just a fraction of the second where your body tenses and anticipates where that drop is going to fall. And then, you know, after I think was it two, three, four bars. Willie Mitchell drops in this string section, which you're not necessarily expecting, but when it comes, it's as if this world opens up for you. Green just made it seem so effortless and simple and laid back, but there was such an intensity that always was beneath the surface to it. Baby. Love and Happiness has, I think, one of the great openings on an album that has many great openings. One of the things that the song does is it builds in this countdown between where Al Green is singing and the guitar is opening to where the rhythm section joins in. Love and Happiness. You imagine in your mind that it's really a foot stomp that kicks it off, right? You know, bump, 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 right? But when you actually listen to the song, it's not a foot stomp. It's really just a simple rim shot tap. Love and happiness. Someone's on the phone. Three o'clock in the morning. Talking about she can make it right, yeah. yeah. Happiness is when you really feel good about somebody. There's nothing wrong. I think what Al Green does better than perhaps any other singer I can think of is that he cries in his songs and there's that tear in the voice as they sometimes describe that slight crack which is not a vocal flaw but it's really what actually brings the voice together his is not a pure pristine voice in terms of its flawless it's those little incremental flaws which I think give it its distinctiveness 
it's always on that border between aesthetic happiness on one hand, but also the potential for, you know, heart-crushing heartbreak on the other. Don't look so sad I know it's over It reimagines what sweetness can sound like in comparison to, let's say, the kind of corner doo-wop sounds that dominated the 50s and really carried through most of the 60s. It blended the subtleties of sweet soul in terms of the lightness, the crooniness of it, but combined it with this rhythm section that, you know, was one of the best in the business. I Think I'm Still in Love With You is a perfect album in terms of how it sounds, but perhaps even more importantly, which is how it touches you emotionally. Oliver Wang on the Al Green record, I'm Still in Love With You. Wang is the editor of the music blog Soul Sides. He's also an assistant professor of sociology at California State University in Long Beach. A few times in the last couple of weeks, I've found myself so angry that I was shaking. Actually, not just angry, angry mostly, but also frustrated and scared and ashamed, if I'm honest. Ashamed, I guess, that I'm not in control of myself, that I'm uncontrolled when I face some situation where I have no control. That's, by the way, when it comes up for me, when I, when I go up against an immovable force, when maybe I'm right, but the situation can't be changed and... I'm being battered by it, then I go astonishingly quickly from placid and maybe happy to tearful and shivering. And when I'm at the peak of my rage, I get embarrassed. And I think, there's nothing you can do. Why are you so angry? You're only letting yourself down. You'll never win this way. I feel sick. What I'm feeling then, I I think, is the anger and discomfort and powerlessness of myself as a child. When you're a kid, there really is nothing or almost nothing that you can do about your circumstances. But every feeling is overwhelming and kind of new, and you're not really sure what to do when it's all flooding you, and maybe you break something or cry or throw up. Like I said, this is... uh, come up a few times lately. So I think that given all that, it's good that I've been spending a lot of time reading Where the Wild Things Are. I read it with my son. He's not quite two, so I don't know if he really feels the full force of the story yet, but I know that I do. This is the book, if you don't remember. Our hero, Max, puts on his wolf suit to I guess, try and be something a little outside of himself, and he gets into trouble, specifically mischief of one kind and another. And when he's sent to his room for being a wild thing, he screams at his mother, I'll eat you up, which honestly scares me every time. And then he goes on a trip through his anger. His room becomes a jungle And he sails across an ocean until he's in a different world and he meets the wild things. And they roar their terrible roars and gnash their terrible teeth and roll their terrible eyes and show their terrible claws and try to scare him. But he looks at these angry, scary beasts and he meets them head on. He stares into their eyes and he becomes their king. And he says it, let the wild rumpus start. And he revels in this world where he is the king of his wildest, most out-of-control feelings. He screams and dances and swings from trees. And then he stops it all. He says, be still. And he goes home. And his supper is still hot. That's so powerful to me. To go straight into your feelings, not to try and blunt them or channel them or control them or whatever it is that we're supposed to do as grown-ups, but to stare them down, see them, 
and then have them be the king of those uncontrollable, terrifying pangs in your gut. And then go home and have your supper. Because no matter how terrible the teeth or the eyes or the claws, no matter where you feel you are now, there's still home on the other side. What a comfort that is. That's my outshot. Hey, listen, this is our last week with Public Radio International. Next week, we'll have a new distributor for our show, NPR. I just want to take this chance to thank PRI for their years of partnership. Without them, I might still be a receptionist in downtown San Francisco borrowing his mom's car to drive three hours to do his college radio show. I particularly want to thank Mike Arnold, who brought our show to PRI, and Heidi Schultz and Mark Kausch, who worked on the show directly with me uh, and were tireless advocates for it. So thank you, guys. We won't have any big changes to the content of the show, so that should set your mind at ease. But I hope that our new partnership with NPR will help keep us growing and help us make the show better. I love hosting Bullseye. I hope you love hearing it every week no matter where it's coming from. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.